Let me say a prayer for us and we'll jump into our lesson. Lord, thank you so much for the privilege of being born and living in this country. It's a privilege that we take for granted so often, but you have blessed us richly. I pray that you would give us a heart to share, a heart for those who are less fortunate. I pray you'd show us opportunities and give us eyes to see them and then give us the faith to help meet the needs around us. Lord, you are a gracious God and we thank you. We thank you for the gift of Christmas, that Jesus made everything new and everything different. I pray you'll bless us tonight as we think about these things and look at your word, that you'd grow our faith and grow our insight. In Christ's name, amen. Well, you guys probably know by now, if you text your questions during class to this number, we try to answer as many of those questions as we can. We have been talking about, here is kind of the hypothetical question. What if Christmas never happened? What if Herod, for example, had been successful when he tried to kill the baby Jesus? Now, I don't ask that question uh, in any way doubting God's sovereignty or suggesting to you Christmas wouldn't have happened. I simply use it as a thought experiment to trigger us to think about what would be different. What's different because Jesus came into the world? Well, you probably could make a long list of things that are different because Christ became flesh and dwelt among us. But we focused on three things. One, and the first was love. And we said that Jesus redefined what love was. Jesus took the world's idea of love being basically a feeling or feeling-based, and Jesus redefined love to be a decision that we make. Feelings are fine, but they're not reliable, nor do they last. And so Jesus said, you know, sometimes if you're going to love the unlovable, that's going to have to be a decision that you make. And so he's the ultimate example of loving by making a decision. The second lesson, we talked about happiness, the pursuit of happiness. And we talked about how Jesus replaced happiness with joy. Happiness is so based on circumstances, and joy, properly understood, supersedes that. It overcomes circumstances. Basically, Jesus replaced something that you can't keep. You cannot maintain happiness. He replaced something we can't keep with something we can't lose. And that is, once we have this joy, this deep-seated joy and this foundation and view of life, it can't really be taken because circumstances no longer control our destiny. So we talked about love, we talked about joy, and in this lesson, I'd like to talk about peace. So I want to talk about inner peace. And I really think that the world is, I put this on your uh, sheet so you could take it home with you and remind yourself that there are trade-offs in life. You know, circumstances can affect your inner peace. The world really would like to have peace. Sometimes that means security. If you just boil down the bottom line, sometimes it's security whether it's financial security, emotional security, relational security, physical security, or whether it is happiness in all of its various guises, fulfillment in some way, all of these things are basically getting at what we understand to be the idea of peace. So I want to just walk through this. Let's just reason together. And then I want to look at what the scriptures have to say about this. Why are we talking about this in Christmas? Because this time of year, we usually read this verse. This is a story where the uh, angel comes to announce uh, the presence, the coming of Christ. 
And suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God, and they were singing this, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. It was translated for a long time, poorly so, as peace on earth. And we kind of have this idea of Christmas that Christ came to bring peace to the earth. Now, there's a lot of truth in that, but not necessarily in the way we think that Christ came to bring peace on earth. So I'd like to talk first about peace on earth. And if you look around the world, and here's just a few snapshots out of the current news. You look around the world and you go, if Christ came to bring peace to the earth, he did not succeed because there is an incredible amount of strife. This is overt uh, war type strife, but there's all kinds of other strife going on in the world, all kinds of suffering, all kinds of difficulties. So if Christ came to bring peace on earth in this sense, then it was not successful. But in what Christ actually talked about, look at John 14, 27. This is Jesus saying exactly what he came to do, and peace plays a big part of it. He said, my peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. So do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. And there are a lot of reasons why he might have said, I do not give to you as the world gives. But what I'd like to do is talk about what does the world think peace is? Well, in one sense, on a, just a basic common view, if I said, what is peace? You'd say, well, maybe it's the absence of war. Well, if that's the case, that is not what Jesus brought to the earth. Or we might say, really, peace is more than just the absence of war. Peace is harmony. Peace is cooperation. Peace is friendly relationships in the world between different people groups, between different nations, etc. But even by that standard or that test, we look around and we realize that has happened at times and in pockets but it's actually not the norm between ethnic groups, between nations, between all of the us and them situations that we tend to bring into our relationships on, on, the, on the earth. So what does Jesus mean when he says, my peace I give you, not like the world gives, but I'm going to bring you peace? Well, he doesn't mean peace in terms of war. When we get into Revelation, we're going to realize that actually... The theology of the New Testament is that all of those things that are going on, the war, the strife, the lack of peace, are actually moving the world forward in God's plan. Now, I don't think the world's intentionally moving forward, but God is able to harness even those bad things to fulfill his purpose. But here's what Jesus says about it. He says, do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Well, if you think about this, he doesn't mean I came to bring sword like my followers are going to go out and kill a bunch of people. That's not any part of the gospel. Christians for several centuries were brutally persecuted and never took up arms to overthrow a government. They would flee, they would hide, they would pray, and they were killed by the tens of thousands. But they never took up a sword. That doesn't, he doesn't mean I came to arm a militia so you can take over the earth what he said was, is I came to bring division. Came to bring, Luke's version, in fact, translates it, I came, but I came to bring division. And that's true, because you know what? The truth, as Jesus brings the truth, the truth always divides. There will always be resentment. There will always be hostility towards the truth. We've talked in one of our earlier lessons about Christians in America 
And you really honestly have to ask yourself this question. What is up with all the hostility against Christians? I understand people in the United States who might very much disagree with what Christians think. They may say, there is no God, and your Bible is wrong, and your ideas about what's right and wrong don't match my ideas about what's right and wrong. Okay, fair enough. That happens all the time in this country. But what is it that brings the hostility to that situation? I'm going to argue that it has a lot to do with people's reaction to the truth, and it has a lot to do with that statement. Jesus understood that when the truth, when the light comes into the world, think John chapter 1, the light has come into the world, and the darkness doesn't like the light, does it? And so Jesus is saying, you're going to see this resistance. Don't think I came to solve every one of your problems. In fact, I'm going to make some of them worse, because now that the truth is here, evil is going to react really strongly to that. So in a sense, when Jesus is talking about peace in terms of war and rumors of war, it's not his intention to stop that. In fact, as we'll see in the book of Revelation, that's actually going to get worse before it gets better. Uh, another passage I'll show you here. He says, I have told you these things so that in me, and he's telling them some of the difficult things are going to happen, so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Now, these are all really well-known passages. I just want you to put them in the context of what does it mean for Jesus to bring peace into the world. He said, I am bringing peace in the world. Oh, and by the way, you're not going to have it in this world. Well, wait a minute. In what sense, then, is Jesus bringing peace to earth? In what sense does Jesus change things by entering the world at Christmas. And that's what I'd like to talk about a little bit, is how do we understand the idea of peace that Jesus brought? What we understand, and what's a bigger challenge, by the way, than peace on earth in terms of war, is this idea of peace as well-being. This is what humanity's really primarily looking for. It'd be nice not to have wars in the world, but peace as well-being is what everybody in this country is looking for. We look at it sometimes on the top right, you see the picture of the guru on the mountain. You know, we kind of have this image that if only we could climb the mountain and ask the wise one the right question, we would know the secret of life. Well, you know, that's been true for people throughout history. Whether you're looking at ecstatic visions that people thought came from the gods or the oracles of ancient Greece and Persia who were supposed to give you this secret knowledge that would make everything make sense and bring peace into your life. People have been searching for that through these magical, mystical ways for a long time. The upper left is a Buddhist monk. And one of the ideas behind Buddhism and other mystical approaches to this question is that you can find peace within by disconnecting yourself from the things that happen that make you so unpeaceful in the world. So there's this kind of mystical approach to humanity, and we do too, by the way. Think about it. In America, if you think about the religious, and I'm going to use that word very broadly, the spiritual or religious tenor of America, very much influenced by mystical Eastern ideas. You get this sense of spirituality. It's not Christian, but it's sort of got that uh, 
there's a giant fairy godmother somewhere in the universe, and if we'll all just be nice to each other and, you know, buy the coffee for the person behind me in the drive-through lane, which I'm not against, by the way. If you see me behind you, you feel free. But my point is, think about that. What's that saying? It's saying, look, if we'll just all act this way, we'll all be peaceful. We'll feel good about ourselves inside, and we'll get along a lot better. That's spirituality. That's a mystical approach to peace, finding peace within us. Why do I say it's mystical? You know how much scientific evidence there is that that actually works? Nada. Do you know how much historical evidence there is that that actually works? Less than nada, you know? I mean, if there's nothing scientific about that, it's a feeling we have. It's a really related to the guru on the mountain. It's a mystical approach to it. Well, come along in the Enlightenment, and then let's just fast forward to the 20th century. We're scientific people. We're very rational people. And so, as we begin to try to control our inside world, because by now everybody's figured out you can't control the outside world. Nobody can find inner peace by making sure nothing ever goes wrong around me. I mean, everybody in the world understands you cannot control everything that's going to happen to you. So we say, well, then let's control what's inside of us. We can do that through mysticism, or we can take a more scientific approach to that. If we can tame parts of the world with technology, why can't we tame the human emotions and the human mind with technology? That's where our country is. That's where most of the people in the Western world, how they approach this idea of peace as well-being or peace within. They approach it with a scientific way of trying to decide how do I control what's inside me. They've rejected Christianity in some sense. I mean, secular people have. They've rejected mystical approaches. I mean, they've even rejected Oprah you know, and so they've gone more scientific, like, let's talk about that. And the, the essence of that scientific approach to finding peace within and controlling my inner being is called the psychotherapeutic model or the psychotherapeutic vision or a, ther I'm just going to short, shorten it and I always call it the therapeutic worldview. So what do I mean by the therapeutic worldview? I just wanted you to understand that Basically, what the therapeutic worldview is, and it is, it's like breathing the air in Western society right now. It is the belief that through scientific methods, I can control the inner person to achieve peace, well-being, harmony, whatever words you want to put around that. And you'll hear a lot of different words, um, human flourishing. Uh, authenticity as a human being. They put a lot of labels on it, but what it really means is I can be at peace inside. Does that make sense? That's a key idea to understanding what's going on in our culture, and it's really key to what I want to suggest to you that Jesus changed. Okay? So let's talk about this therapeutic worldview a little bit. Uh, it pervades everything. Now that we talk about this, you're going to leave here and you're going to go, man, I can see this everywhere. You will see it on almost every billboard. You'll see it in most ads. And so let me tell you what I mean by that. Here's some uh, secular thinkers on this. So Jesus, again, he's going to talk about peace as well. And Jesus wants to talk about this well-being. But needless to say, the world's got a way of achieving that. And Jesus has a different way. So let's talk about the world's way of achieving that. Uh, this interesting little book, 
But listen to this observation. People today hunger not for personal salvation. In other words, they've rejected religious, even the spiritual, mystical ideas of some sense of salvation, let alone the restoration of an earlier golden age, but for the feeling, the momentary illusion of personal well-being, health, and psychic security. So it makes, uh, Lash makes a very interesting connection here. So if I'm going to use scientific means to control the inner person so that I am at peace, I'm at harmony, I can deal with all the things going on in my world in a way that leaves me peaceful, I'm going to have to control my feelings. I'm going to have to find a way to tame the feelings in my heart. So what Lash is saying is that people today hunger for a sense of personal well-being, and it is a feeling, which you and I already know makes it extremely elusive, doesn't it? Feelings are very difficult things to control, but that is the essence of what's happening. The reason this book is called The Culture of Narcissism is, stop and think about this for a minute, as I pursue my inner peace, well-being, through controlling the inner person, where is my attention? Well, it's on me. It's completely on me. With this approach, do I need you? No, you're part of my problem. You're one of those people that cuts me off in traffic. You make me not be peaceful inside. That's why it's called narcissism. In other words, this approach is all about me. You might be able to help me at best, but most of the time you're part of my problem because you won't do what it takes for me to be peaceful. It's a very narcissistic approach. Make sense? Okay, makes a very good point. If you're gonna control the inner person, you're gonna have to control these feelings. And it's gonna be very much inward focused on me and my world. Next, this is a brilliant book. Uh, it's not Christian, but it's a brilliant book. As well as believing that psychological techniques will overcome the tragic conditions of human life. The therapeutic vision endorses an obsessive concern with the emotional states that these conditions arouse in people and the happiness obtainable once these conditions disappear. Well, let's decipher that. That's a profound statement. What he's basically saying is that psychological techniques are the way we are going to tame the inner person so that we can control the inner person, so that we can have a sense of peace and well-being. These external events continue to upset me. What's the problem with it? The problem is it gives me bad feelings. I, I suffer, I hunger, I envy, I have greed. I, you know, All of these feelings disturb my peace. I'm not a person at peace. He's saying that these psychological techniques, we believe, this is a belief system, by the way, this is what the world believes is the path to peace, is that these psychological techniques can in some way overcome all those tragic circumstances, all those bad things that happen out there. And it consequently has to be obsessively concerned about how I feel about everything. Now, I want to pause there for a second. I want to just point out the blindingly obvious to you. As you look at all the things that are happening in America right now, let's just focus on our world. It's not as much about the act 
or the things that are happening. I want you to listen for this. It's about how I feel about the things that are happening. Do you understand what I'm saying? For example, it used to be that you could go to a rally and somebody said something, a college campus. College campus is the poster child for this. On a college campus, you would expect somebody to be standing up and said, hey, I think Hitler was a great guy and we should all become Nazis again. And somebody else saying, no, democracy is the way to go. And somebody else saying, no, Buddhism solves the world's problems. Fair enough. I mean, that's kind of what you would have expected, right? A marketplace of ideas. But that's not the way our world works right now. It's not so much that when you say something objectionable, you've now offended me and you've created a aggression. Micro, you heard the microaggression? That's microaggression. What? That's expressing your opinion. And I just don't happen to agree. But here's the problem. You have disturbed my inner peace. You have made me have unpleasant emotions, right? And I am obsessively concerned about these emotional states because my psychological techniques are going to have to deal with this. And you know what? You can't do that to me. You can't make me feel bad by expressing your opinion. I want you to watch and see it's not the event. It's how that event makes me feel. You have wronged me by causing me to have these emotional states. Does that make sense? Everybody, you look around our world. This is one of the outgrowths of this therapeutic model. So, really astute observation. The psychological techniques are going to allow me to control the inner person, and that's how I'm going to achieve this peace. One more. By maintaining the spurious hope that the tragic limitations of human life now, Thornton's point of view is going to be, at least in this regard, a very Christian point of view, and that is bad stuff happens. Remember Jesus? In this world, you will have trouble. This is realistic. And he's realistic. He said, by hoping that the tragic limitations of human life, and in other words, by hoping that bad things won't happen, can be avoided and that human unhappiness can be eliminated, the therapeutic vision... That idea has been responsible for the wildly unrealistic expectations to which we in the industrial West cling. What's he saying? He said this idea, this approach to happiness, has caused us to grasp for some what he calls wildly unrealistic expectations. How does he prove that? Listen to this. The average American today, we've talked about this before, enjoys a level of material comfort Earlier peoples would have imagined only for the gods, and that is absolutely historically true. What you and I take for granted today, for the last 6,000 years, people would have thought you must be gods because of the comfort in which you live. By every criterion, he concludes, we are the most fortunate human beings ever to walk the face of the earth. Yet despite this godlike comfort, we are unhappy. And that is certainly true. We do lack inner peace. We are obsessed with the pursuit of happiness and the pursuit of peace. Now, we've talked about that before, but I just want to put it in this perspective. Thornton's being very, very critical of the therapeutic worldview. He's saying, if you really think you can take the science of psychology or whatever, and you can control the inner person, 
What that means is I need to control now what you say because you're disturbing me. I need to control what you do because you're disturbing me. Does that make sense? He's saying this has caused us to have a lot of very unrealistic ideas about ourselves and our world. And in fact, he's going to maintain that that path to inner peace is doomed to failure. In fact, it's going to make itself fail. Let me pause for a minute because I want you to digest this idea just a little bit of the therapeutic worldview. It is prevalent, it, but I want you to understand why it's there. People want peace. They want to be at peace. They want a sense of well-being. And this approach is the scientific approach to control what goes on inside here so that I can deal with what goes on out there. Question? How does the Christian counseling offered by the church differ from um, psychology and the professional counseling offered? That's a great question. I'm glad you asked it. Uh, whoever asked that, how does Christian counseling, say offered by our church, uh, by Ron Mon and that team, and we have a lot of discussions about this here, differ from what I'll call more secular paradigms? First of all, let me be sure you understand what I am not saying. I am not saying there is no room for counseling and no one should ever do counseling. In fact, I'm actually going to say the opposite of that is that that can be a very useful technique. Our Christian counselors, and I don't mean they're Christian people who are counselors. I mean they bring their Christian worldview to their profession of counseling. They use standard psychological models. They examine data to see what actually helps people get over certain hurdles, deal with certain things. We do 12-step based programs here because we think they're the best that we have found to help some people with addictions, for example. So our Christian counselors use those paradigms because those techniques can be useful. Same reason that you and I might use the technology of the day. In other words, it can be useful to us. It's when it crosses that line and we begin to put this kind of expectation and think that I can achieve inner peace by those different techniques and things that separates the therapeutic worldview from a Christian worldview. So our approach is to take a Christian worldview that there is sin is real, because the we're going to talk about sin in just a second. The therapeutic worldview does not have any room for sin. I'll tell you how it's been redefined out of our culture. And by the way, you look around our culture, I'm going to give you a killer example of this. There is no sin in our culture anymore. There's just dysfunction, right? We understand the idea that we are human beings bent towards sin. And so the counseling techniques can be very useful but only Jesus Christ can really heal us. So there's, a, there's very much using techniques. Our counselors are all licensed professionals, but they're using them to a different purpose. They do not believe that this therapeutic model, that this science can make you by itself a well-adjusted human being. So great, very good question. Um, is this book by Bruce Thornton, Plagues of the Mind, something you would recommend for a Christian to read? Is this book something I'd recommend Christians to read? Yes, if you have a philosophical bent. And I realize I'm guilty sometimes of making our class a little too philosophical, and Laura's always like, hey, can you cut to the chase and make this a little more realistic? It's a very philosophical book, but good question. Thank you. So let me do one more. I want to introduce you to another guy, Andrew Del Blanco, The Real American Dream. 
This is so profoundly true. Here we arrive at the root of our postmodern melancholy. I love that word. It's an old word and we ought to use it more. Melancholy. Think about it. What is melancholy? It basically says we are desperately pursuing uh, peace, well-being, uh, harmony inside of us. And we aren't getting it in the postmodern world. He's describing this therapeutic worldview, this view of truth and beauty in, in our world right now. He says, and it's made us melancholy. I want you to think about Eeyore. <laughs> Eeyore is a good guy who just wants to be happy. But he's got this postmodern worldview and he's just melancholy. You know, he, he's almost, he's this close to giving up hope, you know? So he says, we arrive at the root of the postmodern melancholy. We live in an age of unprecedented wealth. Notice how we keep coming back to that. In other words, by and large, your and my circumstances, as difficult as they may be, are better than anybody who's ever lived on the earth. And he, so he's not saying that we have it good. He's just saying, hey, you're better than anybody else on the earth. You should at least be somewhat more at peace in spite of living in an age of unprecedented wealth, in the realm of narrative and symbol, we are deprived. And so the ache for meaning goes unrelieved. Here you do indeed hit at a root where uh, Del Blanco and Christians are very much going to agree with this. What he calls narrative and symbol is he's basically saying, in a sense, the spiritual element of this. The problem with the therapeutic worldview is that the scientific practices can control this person, and so I can then achieve peace all by myself. He says the problem is if you look around, that's not what's happening. And it's not happening in the most prosperous civilization that's ever been in the world. He said, but when it, because there's a part of humanity and the achievement of peace requires more than the scientific control of the inner man or inner woman. We are deprived, we are malnourished when it comes to the spiritual realm. And so the ache for meaning goes unrelieved. In other words, you can try to control the inner person all you want, but without meaning, some sense of answers to the important questions of life. Who am I? Why am I here? Where am I going? What is this all about? If you can't set it in that context, you can never attain it. You see what he's saying? He's saying you've got to actually have some kind of worldview that answers these big questions. If you're just trying to make it day to day with psychological techniques to be a happy person, he says that's never going to work. And our experience demonstrates it does not work. In fact, that's really kind of a bankrupt uh, approach to it. The therapeutic worldview has not, is not, and will not deliver on the promise of making people who are at peace. Del Blanco's point is, even if it could work, and there are elements of it that are useful, useful tools, it's trying to solve this little problem, and you can't solve this little problem without answering the bigger questions of meaning. How do I fit into what is the reason for the things that are happening around me? We as human beings are wired for something more, for a bigger meaning. So that's what he is contending. That, in fact, is exactly what Jesus would contend as well. And when he says, my peace I give you, not peace like the world gives you, that's exactly what he talks about. He's talking about a peace that is set in the larger questions of life. So, therapeutic worldview, does that make sense? I want you to watch this week and you'll just spot 
every, occasion after occasion. Let me give you one more example. There's no sin in the therapeutic worldview. If you do something, quote, wrong, it's because there's some wiring problems inside, right? I mean, if science, scientific approach can control the inner person to be peaceful, well then, if I'm malfunctioning, if you will, there must be a wiring problem. I just need to use more stuff. I'll give you a perfect example of this. Harvey Weinstein. You know, you're familiar, I mean, I don't know how you cannot be familiar with the current crisis and the current focus, which by the way, it's about time that there was focus and attention on this issue. But I want to focus on just a little piece of this. Harvey Weinstein been accused and beyond being accused, I mean, of unbelievable decades of oppressive, sexually abusive behavior because he's a powerful man in an industry where he could get away with it. And a lot of people turned a blind eye, but he was very powerful, very successful. Now, you might look at that and say, there's a bad person. That's not what the therapeutic model says. In fact, if you listen to how Harvey Weinstein responded to this, very interesting, and the world's getting a little wake-up call on this. He said, you know what, I acknowledge that I have done some things that are wrong, I've malfunctioned, I've done some things that are wrong, and I intend to seek counseling for those things. Now, that's not a bad idea, but my point is this. What's he saying? I malfunctioned, something went wrong in the wiring. Let's go to the therapeutic worldview and say, could you come help rewire me a little bit and everybody will be good. No concept of sin, no concept of evil, just, hey, I malfunctioned. And so we're going to go fix it. Article uh, yesterday or today, I'm trying to remember when I read this. But anyway, interesting article in the secular press starting to look at this and go, okay, wait a minute. Now, wait just a second. Does anybody actually think that counseling fixes that? Well, so they go interview some psychologists and they say, hey, is this like a diagnosis or something? You know, what this guy's done to be oppressive and sexually abusive and using his position and his power. Is that like, you got like a diagnosis for that? You know what the answer is? No, we got no diagnosis for that. Well, then how are you going to rewire him? And therein was the dilemma for the secular press. It's like, whoa, wait a minute. The emperor may not have any clothes on. Maybe our therapeutic worldview is not right. In other words, the point of view that Weinstein is saying is, hey, I've malfunctioned. I need a little therapy here. I just need a little fixing. You need to heal me up a little bit, and then I'll be good to go. But you go to the psychologist, and they go, we don't actually have a... Because honestly, you know who does sexual abuse? Rich, powerful people. Poor people. White people. Non-white people. Women. Men. Their point is, it's like, there's not like, you know, hey, you got this, take two pills, you'll be better tomorrow. All kinds of different people do these things. Maybe it's not just a little malfunction or a dysfunction in the wiring. And I think the world's starting to come, this crisis has brought the world a little bit face-to-face -face with some of the limitations of this. The idea that there's no sin, there's no real good and evil, you just are acting badly, and so consequently you need some, you need a little engine work, right? That doesn't seem to be satisfactory, nor indeed is it. So let's move on and talk about what I always call the so what. So what does this mean for you and me? This is where Laura says, okay, let's just get the pedal of the metal here and what am I gonna do with this, all right? Well, we as Christians, Jesus 
does not teach us to take the mystical route. Just go discover the true you inside yourself and disconnect yourself from the universe. That's not a biblical point of view. Nor is the biblical point of view to say that, you know what, if you'll just go get enough psychoanalysis, you'll be a peaceful person. Now, don't misunderstand me. The Bible's not saying that counseling is a bad thing and you shouldn't take advantage of it. But what Jesus is saying is, that's not actually going to heal all your problems. That can be very useful to you. It can be very good to help you overcome some things, but don't think that's going to be the thing that makes you a, a, a well-balanced, harmonious, peaceful person. Those are techniques, not ultimate ends. So, what does Jesus have to say? I'm just going to give you, for the interest of time, I'm going to give you two passages that illustrate a couple of really powerful ideas. The world's model, think about this, the therapeutic model is based on the idea of using, in this case, scientific techniques. The mystic uses meditation techniques, but they're using techniques to control what's going on in here. Control my attitude, control my emotions, control my reactions, control something in here. Jesus turns this upside down. What you're going to see Jesus say is, paradoxically, as crazy as this is going to sound to you, the path to peace is not from controlling things. The path to peace is in giving up the need to control things. Watch this. You'll see this all over the gospel. Romans 8, I picked just a few verses. Read the whole chapter. It's beautiful. Listen to this. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. So just think about that for a minute. What's he saying? He said, you have been freed from the guilt, the anxiety, the never being able to measure up to the law, translate that into perfectly proper behavior all the time, the measuring up to be worth your love or your love or God's love. He said, there's now no condemnation for those of us who have trusted Christ, who have surrendered to Christ, because the spirit of life set me free from that. In other words, I have given up the need to control that outcome, that I can measure up, that I can be good enough, that I can earn your love. He says, what then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? In other words, if you just stop and let that sink in and you realize, wait a minute, if the creator of the universe loves me in all things works together for good, not comfort, good for me, not even happiness all the time, but good for me, and the ultimate outcome is already predetermined, who could be against us? He who did not spare, here's your evidence, he didn't spare his own son, but gave his own son up through the ultimate act of love, the ultimate decision to love the unlovable. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? This is what Jesus is trying to say in the Sermon on the Mount. Don't worry so much about what you're going to eat and what you're going to wear and that kind of thing. He said, why don't you seek God and his righteousness? And, you know, why don't you let him take care of all that stuff? Are you starting to feel just a little more peaceful as you think about this? And you go, you know, it turns out a lot of the things I worry about are stealing my peace. They're stealing my well-being. And then this passage. 
Philippians 4, 6 through 7. We talk about this a lot because I think we need to really internalize it. I know it's in your head. I need to, we need to get this thing all the way into our heart. Do not worry about anything. Do not be anxious about anything. Same Greek word. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, every circumstance, by prayer and petition, now we're talking communicating with God, with thanksgiving, with some perspective, present your request to God. Now, here's the really interesting part of this. This is the gospel part of this. It doesn't say God will then become your therapist and he will help you control your emotions. I know some Christians that think that. Like, hey, if I just pray, God's going to calm me down. He's going to help me control my emotions. Yeah, I don't know. That doesn't always work for me. That's not what it says, is it? God's going to be the ultimate counselor. No. God's going to be the ultimate healer. Yes, but not in that way. Not that I'm going to walk away feeling great after every prayer. And oh, by the way, everything worked out in my life. I don't know about you, but I have a pet peeve about, I love videos and I love testimonies that say, you know, I trusted God and it worked out for good. I love that. But you know what I love even more? Is I trusted God and boy, that worked out in a really painful way. But even so, he is so awesome and he is so good. That's peace. The other is a business deal. That's peace. In other words, however this turns out, I'm with you. That's peace. That's what this is saying. It says, when you present your request, your petition, your anxiety, your worries to God, what's he going to give you in return? He'll go beat up your enemies? He'll go control your circumstances? No. The peace of God, which is beyond your ability to actually understand, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. What's he saying? He said, I will trade you every worry you have for my peace if you're willing to make the trade, if you're willing to let go of it in prayer and petition with thanksgiving, he said, I'm willing to trade you peace, and I'll take those problems. But what does that mean? And here's the secret. Here's the secret of, in the Bible for how you can ultimately become at peace. And that is to give up control of the outcome in any situation and leave it to God. Why to God? Why don't I just say give up control of the outcome and I'll just be a bum? Aren't bums happy? Aren't bums at peace? The problem is you need to relinquish control to somebody who's big enough to work things out for good. There's a reason you don't let 12-year-olds drive your car. I don't care how much you trust them. They're not capable. God is. It's not just the letting go of control. It's the object that you give that control to. That's Jesus' message. He says, paradoxically, the path to peace is not controlling what goes on in here. It's relinquishing control for the need for anything to turn out in a particular way and relinquish that control to the one who is able to work in all things for good. That sounds simple, doesn't it? The proof is in the actual believing, the actual trusting. That's why the gospel says you are saved by grace through trying harder. No, you're saved by grace through controlling the inner person. No, you're saved by grace through faith, through trust in Christ. And what does trust imply? It implies that, you know what? You can be in control and I don't need to be in control. And Jesus says, paradoxically, despite what the world seems to think, that's actually the way to peace. Okay? You're looking like, that could work. Again, I'm not saying don't stop going to your counselor. Stop thinking about the things in your life that you think you could change. Don't put your hope in that. That therapeutic model cannot really give you inner peace. 
In other words, as you face trials, as you face difficulties, as you feel anxiety, as you feel upset, I really want you to step back and say, you know, my instinct here is clamp down tighter. Control you or you or strike back at you or somehow try to man up and tough it out. The biblical response to that is actually, what am I not surrendering? That's the question I want you to ask. When you feel that way, it's, wait a minute, what am I not surrendering? I'm not at peace. I'm anxious. I'm worried. I'm struggling. I haven't done this. What am I not surrendering? What am I still holding on to has to be the way I want it to be? That's the question we want to ask. Let that go and watch peace actually happen. That's Jesus' promise. He said, you can try all day to control this if you want to, but actually, if you'll let me handle it, you can have the peace, and I'll take your problem. I want you to try that. I'm even going to give you a money-back guarantee through the Christmas season that if you will try that, you will be far more at peace. So, my message to you this Christmas is, may the love of God the Father and the joy that comes through the Holy Spirit and the peace of Christ be with you all. God bless you.